Today, we want to um, take a little time, and I've been asked a bunch to share parts of our trip to Israel and what we learned, and um, but every site we went to, which went to like two or three a day, also went with it like an hour and a half lecture teaching time, so I don't, I can't do that. I mean, I can, but you won't sit through it. Um, and so anyway, I, I just want to give you like a snapshot, and I want to paint this picture of the importance of God's Word. And um, if you're, I was a history teacher before I became a pastor, and so I really like history. And so I geeked out like crazy on this, and how this connection and this archaeological find connects to the Word here. Like that was, like I was in kind of cloud nine-ish kind of zone. Um, and if you have, if you had a bad history teacher, I'm sorry you didn't have me as your history teacher when I was teaching, because I was spectacular. Um, if you were given just a steady diet of memorizing dates and battles on a map, if that's what you were given is just rote memory, then I'm sorry. Um, history is way richer and way better and way more engaging when you're putting the stories and the connections and the geography and you put it all together and the people and the culture and what's happening. It just kind of comes alive, and that's what I felt was happening while we were in Israel. Um, I, I've been a long-time believer in the inerrancy of Scripture. God's Word doesn't need our efforts to defend it. It stands on its own. Um, I believe that every word is inspired by God in its entirety. I've always believed those things. Well, not always, but the last decade or so I have. Um, early in my faith, I didn't believe that. As a history teacher, just going to church, I didn't believe that. I didn't land in that. But I let my skepticism get in the way of what was already right in front of my face. That if I had done just a little more research, done a little bit more due diligence in my passion for history, I would have seen that God has laid out on the ground all over Israel all the proof that you would need to trust the Scriptures. Um, but we get lazy. We trust Wikipedia over some actual academic sites. We let bias in academia and archaeology specifically cloud our View, our vision of what's really going on. And so I just want to try to give you a snapshot of a little bit of that. I can't show you every picture we took because there's literally a thousand of them. Um, we could do it like a three-second slideshow and you would just walk out, what was that? Um, so I want to kind of paint a picture through one specific site, a couple passages of Scripture, and then I want to show you some other stuff. And like these little connections, when you see like a rock in the ground or something that was dug up, how that can be connected all through the Scripture to prove the inerrancy of Scripture. So that's kind of my goal. My goal today is for you to fall in love with the Bible more and maybe encourage you to jump into a reading plan this year or to dive into the Word in a new way. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time we have together in your Word, and I pray that you'll help us to have a passion to know you more. And the ways that we know you more are through prayer and through your Word. And so I pray that we would, we would make that kind of commitment that we would commit ourselves to talking to you a little bit each and every day. And when we have the time, long stretches of solitude with you. And then we'd commit to spend time in your word. Sometimes that's a fast and furious devotion, and other times that's just sitting and soaking in a couple passages and having you reveal the truth to us. So I pray, Lord, we'd be hungry for both, and we would see that there's um, not a lot better than getting to know you in a deeper way, that you would help us to see who we are in your eyes, that we're loved by you, that you sent your son to be sacrificed for us, and that you are jealous for a relationship with us. We love you. Amen. Um, so if you have 
Well, okay, I don't know if you know a lot about the geography, and I don't try to read what's on there. I know when I throw a map up like this, you all go, don't do that. It's not the point. Um, Israel is a space of, of, when we first moved to Wyoming, I thought this was it. Laramie's it. Okay, Cheyenne to Laramie's it. We live out on Roger Canyon Road. So vast prairie land, grassland, and agricultural wasteland is what I thought this place was. And I made several references to my home, back home in Indiana where I grew up and farms and farmland. And I would kind of make these little jabs. And then someone came up to me and said, have you ever driven around Wyoming? And so in the last couple of years, we've done that. We've been around. And it's this, the landscape of this state is amazing. Like you go from lush green farmland up in the northern part of Wyoming, you land in some desolate red desert areas, you just, just driving, like it's always better when you have the time and the weather's okay. When you go to Fort Collins, you take 287 and you're driving along going, I think that looks like someplace out of the rocks you'd see in the Middle East. Like this, the landscape of Wyoming is amazing, is it not? And it changes dramatically from one section to the next. If you cut north to south, you'll see whole different things. If you cut cat a corner from, you know, the far east corner, southern corner to the northwestern corner, you're going to traipse across all these different... Israel's the exact same way, but it's compacted into this tiny space. The nation of Israel is only about 280, 260-some miles from north to south. So it's not even from here to Sheridan. It's less distance, and it's only about 71 miles wide. So just 30 miles east of Cheyenne from here is the, you can go from the, the Mediterranean Sea to the border with Jordan in 71 miles. It's insane. Now in that short distance, you have a multitude of geographic regions. You've got the desolate kind of Dead Sea area where there's not much there. It's the desert. You have kind of this high valley that runs in the middle that kind of creates this um, almost like a, 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 what we have here, our sage grass tundra, not a lot there. Then you have what's known as the Shepla, which is kind of this area where when the, the clouds from the Mediterranean hit that higher elevation, it kind of dumps, dumps water as some rain, but a lot of like fog and mist and frost in the mornings kind of thing. And that runs into the valleys even more. Lots of cut up valleys, rivers. The place is just crazy. And when you just look at the geography and you see how God sets up this place to be the place where people travel through, they come through, the stories of God, the, the miracles of God, the people of God, that this place was a place where people traveled. It was an international trade zone from European, and by European I mean Turkey, Greece. Then you have coming down south into Africa, the Middle East, people coming from across Asia into the Mediterranean, all came through this area. So in God's providence, he sets up the people of God, his chosen people, to have this land so that the name of God would be known to anybody coming through in caravans. And there was only certain ways you could travel. Just in, I mean, you can't, I don't have a 3D map, but these, these ridges that run up to Jerusalem, these ridges that run, you can't just take your caravan across them. You have to take the Jordan Rift Valley. You have to go through the Jezreel Valley to get to these places. There's just, you can't be transported there. It's not possible. You might be able to hike it, but it'd be like hiking, you know, up to the to Medicine Bow Peak. 
You're not going to take your donkeys with your produce and your goods. You're, not going to, you're going to have to go through these areas. So you have all these military locations. You have this spot along the coast. Like All these areas are just spots where it's, it's geographically forced trade routes. And God says, my people will be here. You will be, when he promises, tells Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, he's being specific. You're going to be here in this area, be a blessing to the nations as they travel through. That everything God does, he does for a reason. Even giving people a piece of land. He didn't give them the coast of France. I know, don't get all timeliney on me. I know it would have been, it doesn't make sense. But he didn't give them that. He didn't give them the tip of Saudi Arabia. He didn't say, go here to this little spot. He said, come here. The very place where his name would have been known to all the nations passing through. So that led me on like all these, like, that's crazy. That's awesome. That's powerful. And then we sat in these spots and read the word of God. So I want to share one connection from Genesis into John chapter four. Um, I want to kind of share this with you. And then I'm going to go just through like a rapid fire list of some spots and some observations and there's only like five other sites I decided to mention because I can't mention them all. Um, you'll get them over the next 20 years of me being senior pastor here. So just stick around and you'll hear it all. Okay. Um, when, when you talk about Abraham and how he traveled. So this is just kind of a, a, a map out of a book. So when Abram comes into the promised land and he comes to this area, he stops at this, this area in a city, the city of Shechem. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12. And so, and don't, don't worry about the rest of the map. This is all kinds of, but I just want you to see like when Abram, when Abram comes in and he's told to leave the Fertile Crescent, and he's told to come here, he lands in this spot and God gives a promise to Abram. Okay. And so it's in Genesis chapter 12 where he says, um, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, which we, we can find this place. Shechem exists, or at least the digs around it. We found this place archaeologically. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the sea, oh, sorry, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, the reason I bring this up is that twofold. Number one, there's a promise by God that your people, your descendants, will have this land. They're going to have this land. And two, we get two cities mentioned, three, Shechem, Bethel, and Ai, which I know one of you in the room has seen all these cities. Um, You stand in this spot and you look and you go, well, here's I. We believe I is here. There's been digs there. It's been found. It's here. And here's Bethel or Bethel. It's a whole other story. But, and Dr. Bookman's smarter than me, so you can listen to it from him. Um, you just find this spot. So if we're going to find this place where the land is promised to Abram's descendants, you find the city of I, you find um, Bethel, and it has to be near Shechem, and you find the spot, and like here's where the city was, here's the city was, and Shechem's over here. So this is clearly the spot. So the land promised by God to the descendants of Abram is going to be in this area. Without a shadow of a doubt. It's here. So the word of God says it's going to be here, and then we do digs, and we find it, and it's there. Amazing how that works. Now, what's interesting is if, and I, and I took some archaeology classes, and there are some sciences in the world that if you are in the world of academia, higher education, and especially high-end um, 
evolutionary theory and archaeology, if you try to go against the standard, the, the status quo thinking that's going on at the university level, and you go against it, you're shut down pretty quick. You have to have some pretty dramatic evidence, lay it out there, prove your point. Like if you, if you say that the Leakey family doesn't know what they're talking about when it comes to archaeology and evolution, you'll be laughed out of universities. Right? But there's a whole, you, if you dig enough, if you dig deep enough, there's a couple books that are contrary, the hidden history of archaeology. There aren't even like Christian books that kind of dig in and say, why do we just let this one group of people always have all the answers? Why do we let these people do this? And you start questioning those things, you'll go, oh, you must be one of those people. Well, the same thing happens in archaeology. Up until the World War II, every archaeologist in the Middle East, they had a shovel in their right hand and they had a copy of God's Word in their left. Where are we going to find the city of Ai? Well, if we find Shechem, if we find Bethel, then Ai must be where? If Bethel's on the west and Ai's on the east, and if you find Bethel, just look east and you'll find Ai. Guess how they found the city of Ai? <laughs> they just said what the Bible said. They followed it. It's right there. It's amazing how that works. Throughout all the sites, Jericho, same thing happened. All these sites throughout the Middle East, throughout Israel, uh, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, where the, oh, they found it, right, where the Bible said it was going to be. Oh, but since, the, since World War II, 1948-ish, archaeology said we don't want to prove the Bible to be true. For multiple reasons. One, you have nobody wants God to be their authority, so we want have itching ears. Because if, if all these things come to be true, then, oh boy, now I've got to actually follow what the Bible says. I don't want to do that. I want it to be a myth, because then I can just make up my own scriptures. I can just do whatever I want and say, eh, we all make it up anyway. You also have the fight in the nation of Israel with Palestine. You have, um, you have an Arab claim on that land that's really only dated about 700 years ago, but you have a Jewish claim on the land. If you find the cities and find the sites, you have a Jewish claim on the land that's 3,000, 4,000 years old. So just based upon that, you can make claims of, this is my land, this is not your land, I have a right to this, we were here longer. You have these political fights that happen, and that filters into academia a little bit. And we have issues. But I, I just want to paint the picture. The land's promised to Abram. We have the spot, we have the site, we know because God's word tells us where it is. So then, you fast forward to Jacob. You guys know the story of Jacob, right? Jacob and Esau. Weird story, the hunter and the non-hunter and furry backs and fur coats. And there's just weird stuff in there if you know all about it. And, you know, I, I have connections to Esau because now I am, I'm not a very good bow hunter, as Kyle will point out multiple times. But, you know, I got a hairy back, so it would be it's cool for me to, right? That's awesome. Maybe it's too much information, but... So if you look at Jacob, Jacob and Esau, there's this fight over the blessing. There's this fight over what's happening. Mom's involved. There's some stuff in there. We don't have time to go into it all. But there's, the blessing is robbed from the firstborn Esau, and it's given to Jacob. When this happens, they separate. Jacob has problems. He's promised a wife. He has to hang out with Laban. There's all these things that go on in Jacob's life, 
and it causes even greater and greater animosity to rise. Esau is found to be favored by God. He has essentially a small army. He's growing in power. He's growing in influence. And Jacob has had these struggles, and he's finally free of all of this, and he's able to kind of grow, and his herds are growing. And they, but then this moment happens. So in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with God. So on this night, um, he's wrestling with God. He talks to God, he, and he wants a blessing from this man. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob at Israel, for you have strive, striven, you've wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name the place called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So you have all this happening, and right after he wrestles with God, he's blessed, he's the, the promise has been given. Jacob lifts his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So you have this bad blood between these two brothers, which is partially Jacob's fault, partially influence. Of, there's, there's some deception in here. And Jacob is this man on a journey trying to honor God, wrestles with God, wants the blessing of God. He's kind of a work in progress. And then he sees his brother coming. What would you expect? After all this bad blood between them, why is Esau and his 400 men coming to see Jacob? He's going to kill him. He's going to get his revenge. So Jacob hides his children, hides everyone, tells everyone to go away. I don't want you to die in this. He's coming for revenge. And in verse 3, he says, He himself went out before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So Jacob is in a place of he just wrestled with God for blessing. He has the robbed blessing that his brother was rightfully deserved of from his father. And he sees his brother coming and he falls down on his knees in a place of repentance saying, Kill me, not my family. Jacob's willing to sacrifice himself to save his family. And Esau, who has every right to be angry, ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? So it's like he has kids. He has wives. Their relationship has been completely broken. He comes up, hugs him, weeps, and says, Can I, can I meet my family? Can I, can I meet him? Hey, I've been blessed. The story continues. Come, be part of my house. Come, hang out with us. We got, we got all this great stuff. Instant forgiveness. So this place becomes a place of forgiveness rapidly. Now, the story continues. Jacob is offered to come with Esau, but Jacob's flocks have just had babies. And we're getting close to, to birthing season around here, right? And in all the ranches, when we get to birthing season... And you see on the weather channel that there's going to be a 12-inch snow and you've got calves in the field, what happens? Everybody gets scared. My calves are going to die. My babies are going to die. What's going to happen can be devastating. So Jacob's in this place where his, his flock is just having had birth and he doesn't want to move them all the way to Esau's place. He's going to, lo- he's going to lose all of his, lose his money lose his food. He's going to lose it all. So he tells Esau, yes, I'd like to do that, but my flocks are young, so I need to stay. 
So we get to verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. I think we just talked about that, right? Which is in the land of Canaan on his way from the Padan Aram, and he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar call and called it El Elo Israel. So you got this spot that Jacob purchases from people in Shechem, which just happens to be in the area in which Abram had seen the promise of God, so your people have this land. So why is that so significant? Well, I'm glad you asked. You have this spot where we have found Shechem. We know exactly where it's at. We know where it is. We know where its location is. We know where the city of Ai is. We know where the city of Bethel is. We know where these places are. We have city gates. We'll get to that in a minute. We have all these areas that we know where this spot is. And then we get to John chapter 4. If you have a new flock and a new people and you buy a piece of land, you're probably going to have a well on your land. Right? I mean, we, all, we live in the West. We know how important water is. You've got to have a well. You've got to have water. Jesus in his encounter with the Samaritan woman. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. That's a whole other sermon, a whole other time. And he had to, uh, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So you have Jacob's well, land bought by Jacob, promised to Abraham through God in an area that's still there today. So how do you find it? Well, we found the city of, we know where Shechem is. We find the city of Ai. We find the city of Bethel. That's a whole other story. We have these, and then you have this well that exists. It's the well where Jesus had the encounter with the Samaritan woman. A place of forgiveness. A place of covenant. A place of promise. So do you think it's just happenstance that Jesus shows up in this area, in this spot, to proclaim what we're about to read to a woman, a Samaritan woman? The half-breed Assyrian-Jew mix who are seen as less than dogs in society? And he professes faith to a woman there, the same spot in the area, at least, the same area where Esau and Jacob are reconciled to each other. Like these are, this is thousands of years of time happening in one spot with a continued promise of God. So we got to hang out in the basement of a church and see Jacob's well. Now, you have to get your brain around this. We live in the United States where we're only old, barely over 200 years old. And even today, if there's a 100-year-old farmhouse and you're going to remodel it, what will someone tell you when you buy that 100-year-old farmhouse to remodel it? What's someone going to tell you when you start putting all your money into it? You just tear it down and build a new one. What are you doing? Why put all that effort into that? We have to get our brains out of that mode. This is a land that's existed for thousands upon thousands of years. People build upon top of it. So if this well existed during Jesus' time, it's a 2,000-year-old well. It's more than that. But from Jesus being there, it's 2,000 years. There's a Greek Orthodox church built all around this well. 
in the history of the Christian faith. It was seen as a place of honor, a place of respect, a place of, of the stories of Christ, um, leading all the way back to the promise to Abram and then Jacob purchasing the land. And so there's a church built all around it. So it's a Greek Orthodox church. We walked in to go see it, and like there's a service happening, and all 75 of us kind of like filter around the outer edge. And we go to this spot, and you go down into the basement, and we got to hang out around Jacob's well. This is the well in which Christ talked to the Samaritan woman. It's the well in which Jacob would have purchased the land, dug the well, had the well to be there for his flocks, for his people. He was there for several seasons, and it's the place promised by God. It's a pretty amazing moment. The well is about 100 feet deep. When you drop a cup of water into it, it takes a while to listen to it hit. So it adds a whole new dynamic to when Jesus is there at the well. He's tired. He's weary. It's the middle of the day. It's the heat of the sun. And this woman who's in shame comes to get water. It wouldn't have been her carrying just like a Nalgene bottle. It would have been a bucket with 100 feet of rope. And she would have tossed it in and she would have pulled this up. And she serves Christ in this way because he has nothing to get the water out. And you read that, and you're like, has nothing at the water? Did he forget his cup? Like, you're supposed to have that Nalgene carabiner to your belt. Like, what are you doing? It just adds a different dynamic to the whole picture. As she's laboring to serve him and take care of him, and you've got the pictures of the Good Samaritan in the same moment, and she's asking some deep questions, and she has a faith, but it's still tenuous, and Jesus tells her the truth. So when we're all packed into this well, like it's a tiny little room with a room built all around it, which you just have to get over. Like, I think that there's times when I thought, you know, the archaeological dig, it should be nothing. It should be pristine. And you got to get that out of your head. Like, you guys know that the Ivinson Mansion, when you go take the tour, that is not how it looked 60 years ago, right? I mean, you, when you take the tour, they tell you that people broke in tore up the floor, burnt it in the fireplace. You know that, right? Um, there's an island when we lived in West Virginia, Blennerhassett Island. It's this island mansion. It was a spot during the Civil War where they would defend and all this stuff. And you tell, hear the story, and you, you finally get, you see the little sign that says, this little cornerstone is the only original piece on the entire island. I'm like, but there's this giant building and barns, and I don't, I feel robbed. Same thing when you go to the territorial prison. If you take the tour and you listen, you'll eventually hear someone say, over there is the only original part of the entire thing. Well, how do you know all of this? Through stories and through pictures and through people telling what it looked like. But we, in, in, we like having historical representations. So you've got to get past that things are supposed to be pristine and perfect. you just got to get over that. There's 2,000 years of people living in that area, and they built a church to commemorate the spot in which Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman. So you've got to get over it. Now, what's important is the story that happens there. So this is the Samaritan woman mentioning, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, what she's saying is Jewish people. She sees them as a rabbi. We've worshipped on this mountain, but you say, all you Jews, non-Samaritan Jews say, we've got to go to Jerusalem. She's feisty. I like her. Jesus said to her, woman, I don't think he said it quite like that, but I like to interpret it that way because... <laughs> I, I just do. Um, maybe that's sexist of me, but um, I, think it's, I think it's a term of endearment. So when I say that to my wife, woman, I'm just, it's just, okay. <laughs> you all know that doesn't fly in my house. Um, 
He says, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he's saying, like, hey, 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 don't be so hard on them. Yes, they have. They've, gone, they've gone to, taken it too far. They've ostracized you. But don't, don't discredit the promises made through the Jewish people that the Messiah is coming. He then says, But the hour is coming, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. He tells a Samaritan woman in an area that Jewish people wouldn't even go to, and he declares to her, I am the Messiah. And what's she do? She goes and tells everybody. Now, is that just happenstance? That Abram is promised a piece of land to his generations, to his family. Jacob, in a moment of reconciliation, forgiveness from a brother whom he robbed, in this, at least in the area of Jacob's well, we see forgiveness poured out even in rebellion. And then we see a Samaritan woman in the same area, hundreds of years later, openly defiant, comes to a faith and tells everyone. And in the midst of this, we often miss this, the disciples dumped Jesus off by the well and said, we're going to get you some food. They come back and have told no one that the miracle man is right there. It takes the Samaritan woman, who's seen as ostracized in society, she's given the water of life, tells the whole village, they all come, and the disciples didn't do any evangelism because they're Samaritans. Genesis to John, one location, one spot, used by God in a multitude of ways for all of us to understand that the forgiveness of God has been providentially professed it's something we can stand on, and it's for everyone. That kind of archaeology and history, I like. That's cool. It's why we should have a passion for reading the Word. I'm just as guilty as the rest of you. You just blow by it. You got your daily devotion. You do your reading plan. You never look at the notes in your study Bible because you just don't have time for that. I'm like, we're all the same. But when you have those moments where you've got an hour, you've got two hours, you've got some quiet time, you've got 15 minutes sitting in the parking lot waiting for your kids to get out of school. What if you dug in just a little bit more? Like, let those burrs that hang in your brain a little bit, like, what is that really? And you got those little moments, and you got your smartphone that's not really that smart. I think it's making us dumber. But you got that smartphone, throw on the Bible app and look it up. God wants us to see how powerful He's moved in time and in space and in location through His Word. We can't take this book for granted. It's the access to the truth that we have that God loves us and He has a plan and He's fulfilling His plan and He always gets His glory. I, I like the Bible. And I pray that you fall more in love with it. And I'm going to show you a couple other things. That was my sermon part, and this is my tour guide part. If you could all make the trip to Israel, 
I think you'd be blessed. But not all of us can do that. That's the beauty of technology. You can research these things. You read about a spot in your Bible, you're reading a text of Scripture, and you Google it, that can get you started, and then quickly skip past Wikipedia and get to a site that shows you things. So this is Caesarea Maritime. Um, This is an amphitheater. Um, This is where they would have concerts, music, plays, um, proclamations, and it's still standing. Now they have excavated, they've done things, they've fixed things, like the guys in the bottom left corner are adding tile to the floor because they, they still do some concerts and things there in this area. So you have to also kind of look at that too. You have to look through the layers of what's been done over thousands of years as you're there. But what was significant for me and why I liked it was this was the area in which Herod the Great built his own harbor. If you've been around the coast at all, um, some of the major cities we have, um, they have deep water harbors, and that's why they're so important to trade. Whether it's New Orleans or um, New York City and Boston and San Diego for our Navy, San Francisco, you have all these areas that are deep water harbors. So to have international trade on shipping, you need a place where boats can come in protected from storms, they don't get smashed against each other, and they're deep enough to where they can come in and offload their goods. Well, there's no deep water harbor on the coast of Israel. Um, the Phoenicians were farther north, but they had all the shipping. They had, so Israel was a land trade route. But Herod the Great and all of his opulence said, we should have a harbor. And so he built one. I'll say it again. Harbors are natural things. He decided to build one. So he had some water and he decides to build like a break water. This is kind of a part of the town and the city there. Um, and then if you go up, out areas, you can see where the water used to, where the, the wall could have been or may have been. It's all been destroyed by um, disrepair and, and storms and everything else. But he decided to build a harbor. A special kind of concrete they learned how to do in Rome was brought to there where you would put volcanic ash and you'd have concrete that would set in water. So you would sink forms into the into the spot and build pillars and put them in there. And I don't know if Matt uses volcanic ash in his concrete, but like you do these kind of, you do this stuff and he just built this opulent spot. Now why I bring all this up is this would have been the area in which Paul, when he was in prison, spent a couple of years sharing the gospel. Um, when this is where he professed his Roman citizenship and said, I'm a Roman citizen. And so he was in house arrest here because the, as a Roman citizen, they couldn't turn him over to the Jews to be killed. And so he had the protection of Rome And eventually he was sent off to Rome um, to plead his case before Caesar, where he dies in Rome. So Herod the Great builds this harbor, which in later, as Herod's already way gone, um, the same spot is used for Paul as an area of of protection. But it's also a picture of the opulence of of the time. You built a harbor. I think sometimes we think that people 2,000 years ago are technologically stupid and they can't do anything. Um... We just talked about the Ivinson Mansion being destroyed by looters. And there's places here that were looted just as well. But the stuff, the foundations are all there. It's all there. There's even a, a place for horse racing, which you've got to have if you're super wealthy, the Hippodrome. They had horse chariot racing areas. So it was a place of great opulence. Major city, major um, worship to Roman gods, some debauchery. All these things are here. Um, just kind of a, a neat picture that civilization was way more advanced than we try to give it credit for. Aqueducts taking water from the mountain, you know, 16 miles into the city because there's no fresh water here. Like, you don't just come up with that stuff. 
like we struggle to, you know, when you have a, a problem with your, the city in Laramie and you got water problems, it takes them like, they're building aqueducts, bringing water 13 miles, which you can't get it fixed from the street to my house. Like, come on, right? This is Mount Carmel. Um, this, mon- this little statue is there to commemorate where Elijah had the, the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Um, pretty powerful kind of moment to know that this is where God defended his name in an amazing, miraculous way. Like This is where he challenged the prophets of Baal. This is where he kind of lays it out. Uh, but it's just a statue. What was most significant for me was standing on top of this little area that marks it and looking down into the valley. The Mount Carmel was sitting on the middle of a trade route, which is why the prophet of Baal or the temple of Baal would have been there. They would have had worship there. And so God comes along and empowers his prophet Elijah and says, go challenge him. And you know the story. You put your burnt offering here. I'll put my burnt offering here. You pray over there. And it's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. I've got a lot of those where Elijah's taunting the prophets of Baal. He goes, maybe your God's on the toilet. If you don't, it's in the Bible. Go read it. Maybe he's, maybe he's busy relieving himself. Like there's, I love it. Like there's like personality and taunting. And I just love it. Um, and they, they're cutting themselves or doing all this stuff, and Elijah's just kicking back, and he's like, hey, go get some water. So they have to go get water out of the valley to bring it up to the top and pour it all over. This, this wouldn't have been like a quick little thing, like turn the faucet on. It would have been hours and hours and hours of making this happen. And then God is vindicated, God is put on display, and the prophets of Baal are taken out and killed. Now, that's a significant story, but the geography of the location is significant because it's in a major trade route. So people coming around this area, talking in the shops, stopping to get, you know, you don't just stop and get gas and get on the road. You've got to get food for your animals. You've got to, it takes a little more time. You're going to do some trading along the way. And they hear these stories. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened a couple years ago? Did you hear what happened? Oh, man, right over there is where it happened. Like, my grandfather saw it, and it's been a continual story of the glory of God in a trade route that people from around the world would have heard this. It was kind of crazy as we were there. This is still a very important um, agricultural valley, but it's also close enough to um, the coast, but it's also close enough to... It's a, it's a semi-protected area because it's in this valley, and there were uh, there's an Israeli air defense... Um, airport there and so we we're up there on Mount Carmel and there are jets flying all over on on maneuvers landing on the I think it's the right spot right okay Amber has a look on her face I'm like am I getting this wrong and they're like landing and all their all their military fighter planes they're housed underground so they can't be destroyed from a rocket attack and so we're, we're what so this area where there's been a fight for God's fame and God's name to be known to everywhere it's still a contentious fought over spot even to this day even to this day um this is jericho which was pretty cool for us to be able to go to jericho it's in the middle of palestine territory um you like you pull up to this hotel and you park the bus and you go through and like hey we're going to jericho really this is pretty crazy it's pretty amazing now what we got to see was the story of how archaeologists tried to hide the truth. Um, we, there are archaeological reports of when they did this dig and they were taking it away, that there were piles of um, clay bricks that had fallen outward. That this is where the city of Jericho was. 
This is where the wall fell. And then there was the stone foundation rocks that are there at the bottom. And atop, above it would have been the clay, the clay brick walls that would have fallen down. But since the 40s, you have archaeological reports before that saying, yeah, we took away the dirt. And we found big piles of, of clay bricks that were there. But when you expose clay bricks, they wash away in weather. It's not like stone sitting there. And so since this has happened, um, since the 40s or so, they've retold the story saying, well, it's the city of Jericho, but it doesn't date the right time. Um, that wall thing, we don't see any rubble around. It's not really there because, see, look, the walls are right here. But if you just actually do an honest dig, like around the corner, and you expose it, and you see it's all right there, um, but it's just they're trying to hide it because if the city of Jericho really existed during that time, then it lays a claim to, to the Bible that it's accurate, it's real, it's true. So we got to kind of push that away a little bit. Um, we even were able to walk up the ramp, which I don't, I mean, this is just a rubble pile, but I took the picture because as the walls, once the walls fell, it's still a wall. Like, how do you run in and attack it? I mean, that, that as the rubble would have fallen, there would have been, that, that's in God's providence, those clay bricks falling would have almost made a ramp to go wipe the place out and get over the walls. That's not like the bread bricks. That's, you can see steps. That's not, you know, God didn't make the bricks fall in a step-like fashion with a metal handrail. That wasn't a thing. Uh, but we were able to see the burn layer. Um, and so you see that in the scripture that Jericho was destroyed. It was completely wiped out. And that was the beginning of Joshua's move into these other cities. That Jericho is completely destroyed. And then as he goes to the rest of the cities to take the land from the Canaanites, as he's continuing to go, those cities aren't destroyed. They're given as spoils to the victor. And so the people of God just moved into cities that were already there. Um, they were able to just move in and take over. But Jericho was wiped out. So in, in what you see here, that's a burn layer. Um, so what that shows is that the place, because uh, all these cities were just you built upon. So once Jericho was destroyed, then somebody else came along years later and built more on top of it. You know, it'd be like us today, like if a house burns, in town, um, and you purchase the land, then you just show up and you push all the, the building away, and you go, well, there's foundation blocks, and you just build right on top of it. Now, because of we don't do that. We rip it all out. We pour a slab over it. We don't do that because that's not code. It's not, but you're not going to say, hey, those rocks there piled up in a nice form of a wall. Let's just haul a bunch more rocks by hand over there and do it. They're not going to do that. You're going to build on top of it. And so the burn layer shows where Jericho would have been completely decimated and burnt, as the Bible describes. And it wouldn't have been just a light a match and burns what's there. They would have hauled lumber in, hauled trees in to burn this place, as an example. That this place, that, that God reigns and rules over this land, not the Canaanite gods. And I'm just going to... We're going to wrap this up fast. Um, that's Dr. Bookman. Um, I'm hoping that you guys will get to meet him. Um, if he comes to town, I might have him come speak here at the church, and I've talked to him about it. He's a great dude. Um, just loves, he's just passionate about the Bible. I hope I'm as cool as him when I'm in my 70s. Um, it gives me hope that I might get there eventually, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, he's picking up, that's a millstone. I just wanted you to see it. Like when you read in the Bible, I think we have pictures, like I think for the first several times I've ever read that passage of scripture about it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck than to cause a child to stumble. Um, I think I had my American ideals of frontier town. I grew up in Vincennes, Indiana, so it's a Revolutionary War, you know, French trade town, and you would go to the, um, 
you'd go to the mills, like we would visit them in grade school. So you had the water mills and these big stone round. I think that's kind of what I had in my head the first several times that I read scripture like that. But a millstone, that's a house millstone. And so you have the pedestal on the bottom. You have the millstone that he's putting on top. And so you would dump your grain in the center and you would have, you would spin it around and the chaff would kind of be blown away by the air on the top and then the flour would fall to the bottom. And so when you read the passage of scripture about being sifted like wheat and the chaff is going to blow away and even Psalm 1 where you should have deep planted roots in the word of God and you shouldn't be like the chaff that's just blown by the wind. Well, that's what the Bible's describing to you, something that everybody would have understood. God's using that as an image that everybody during the time would have been a clear picture of as you grind the wheat, the chaff floats away. So that's a millstone. Still pretty heavy. I mean, you, that's a, it's a big piece of rock. Uh, I'll close with something else. I don't know what. Uh, we got to go to the, where the Sermon on the Mount would have been preached. There's a church there commemorating the spot, the Church of the Beatitudes. I was kind of upset because we couldn't go to where Jesus would have actually preached it because it's on the other side of the fence on the banana plantation property. Um, I rebelliously was, I mean, I think Amber saw it in my eyes. I was contemplating jumping the fence just so I could go take a picture and be there. And I got lots of looks of, don't do that. That's going to be, you're going to go to jail. And it's not, you don't just get bailed out and it's, it's not happening. So, um, but if you can see the Sea of Galilee through the branches there, in this area, like people have always contemplated or said, well, that's, that story's garbage. There's no way that Jesus could preach to 3,000 plus people, 5,000 plus people. There's no way he could do that in those areas. And before this fence was put there, um, groups used to be able to go down and just hang out in that whole valley. And someone would stand on the hillside and just speak. You had to speak kind of loud, but if you're, if you're in any kind of public speaking, kind of an orator's voice, like if my mic cuts out, which has happened here at the church, I just talk louder. I can talk loud enough to where most people can hear even if the mic stops working. And so you go down that spot and just talk with a good orator's voice and everybody could hear it. That was cool for me. Like that's where the Sermon on the Mount was. We think. Makes sense. Um, Pretty cool spot. And then another one, um, we went to the Garden of Gethsemane, which I don't know if some of you have been there. It's kind of a, like, there are no signs that say, shh. But everyone walking around was very solemn. Very kind of quiet and contemplative. Like, you could have been in the corner telling jokes and doing stuff, but, and I think I probably did a couple. Um, but there's, like, there was just this solemn kind of, this is where Jesus prayed. Like, this is, you know, some people try to say that those are the olive trees. And olive trees will last two, th- I doubt it. But they could have been, like, these are the descendants of the olive trees that Jesus prayed around. I don't know. But there was this just kind of hanging out in that garden. Just this powerful kind of like, this is where he, like Jesus was contemplating the cross with the Father in this space. And is it right there in the middle? I doubt it. Who knows where exactly it was. But it would have been on this hillside where these olive trees were that my Savior contemplated taking on the sins of the world in this space. And talks to the Father? Like, oh, it was, yeah, powerful. We got to go into the cave. It's kind of there. It's not kind of, it is there, literally there. Um, the cave's there. We got to go where this probably is a spot where Jesus and his disciples would have slept. If they're going, if this is a place where Jesus went to regularly to pray, to get away, 
then this cave would have been a place to hang out. I've been like a, um, if you've ever been anywhere near the Appalachian Trail, there's these Adirondack kind of three-sided spots along the Appalachian Trail, where if you're hiking the trail, then you can just camp out there. Like you're hiking the trail, just slide in and other people will join you. This cave area would have been the same. Um, it would have been an area where people traveling needed a place to lay their head down. They're not going to pay for a room in the end, but they're willing to camp. Um, we identify that here as it's like public lands. If you want to camp in the snowies, you just pull off the side of the road and pitch a tent. You don't have to ask permission or do anything. And if there's a government shutdown, you just climb over the fence. Like, who cares? They can't bust you. There's no one working. So you have, right? So this just would have happened. They're just they're right there. And they would have, and this was a, this was a quiet spot too. To think that the disciples and Jesus hung out here multiple times. That even as we were talking and telling the story, that Judas, when he left that upper room and he went to get the soldiers, they would have went back to the upper room to find him there. And Jesus hops up and goes and goes to Gethsemane. So how did Judas know where Jesus would have been to take the soldiers? This would have been a place where he went a lot. So Judas would have said, oh man, he's gone. Where is he? I bet I know where he's at. He always goes and prays over there. Let's go. And they found him. He was there. So just some like powerful moments and sitting in spots where God talks about clearly in his word. Um, yeah, I got lots of stories. You're going to hear a lot. Um, there's also kanafe. No, it's a, it's a baked phyllo bread. So think mozzarella cheese sticks melted down to gooey awesome. And then a baked kind of breadcrumb and then sugar water poured over the top. Dessert. So tasty. Um, we went there twice because we're gluttons like that. Awesome. And then um, they also have these. <laughs> Which Bob Littlewood comes to the first service that you know, has owned the fly store forever. And I've asked him if he would try to get these imported. And I would promise to buy two of them a week if he would bring them. Um, this is a Nestle Crunch bar, but it's a chocolate bar in the middle, surrounded by ice cream and white chocolate shell. <sighs> I mean, we've all had ice cream bars where it's ice cream and chocolate around it. This is like the triple threat. <laughs> and every time we went somewhere and they had them, I bought one. So not only is the, the land of God's people amazing for its historical significance, they have good sweets. So to end today, um, I just want, I, I wish I could take you all there and you're going to get little pieces over the next several years and, you know, 20 years or so, but there's, I want you to love God's word. I mean, I'm, I'm the biggest, probably not anymore. I was the biggest skeptic. Like I came to faith as a 17 year old kid and then within four months, I'm in a social science program to be a history teacher. Well, to study history, my goal was to go become an attorney, go be a lawyer. So I'm in a social science field. I took an archaeology class, rigorously pushing against the scriptures. It's all made up. It's fake. It's not real. Um, sure, there's some stories in there, but no one was taking the same veracity of academic endeavor to the scriptures. Instead, they were trying to use it to push them away. And I'm just asking you to go after God's word with an honesty that says, I don't know all the answers, but I'm willing to figure it out and fight for them. And I'm going to pray that God opens my eyes. That didn't happen to me. I'm a believer at 17. It wasn't until I was challenged 
to actually read the scriptures instead of critiquing them all the time in my early 20s. That led me on a path of why haven't been shown this? Why hasn't someone taught me this? Why on Sunday mornings was I getting kind of these how to live my life kind of things going on, but no one was just verse by verse showing me the power of God's word. So it put a fire in my belly to do that, which led me to be a pastor. And now after going and listening to someone as intelligent and as well-versed in the word as Dr. Bookman, I'm like, I got so much to learn. Like, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. Like, I can tie my shoes, and I can, you know, give the receipts to my wife so she can bounce a checkbook. Like, I can do stuff. But you take a trip like that, and you're like, man, I got a lot, I got a lot to learn. You're never done learning how much God loves you, how much he's moved in this world. You're never done. You can go to seminary. You can take all the education you want. You can read the Bible through all the way through every year for 20 years, and you're going to pick it up on your 21st year, and God's going to reveal something new to you that year. Every single time. So don't ever come to me and say that this book is boring. You're, you're not reading it. Now, if you're confused about stuff, if stuff drives you nuts, that's what we can work on. We've got access to commentaries that aren't Facebook. We've got access to all kinds of stuff. We've got access to people in this room who have had those same struggles, fought those same fights, know the answers, have the books, have got the t-shirt. They're in this room. Don't you ever walk out of this place feeling like you can't find an answer or you're lost. We've got people here that will help. So my challenge to you as we start 2019, you're making all your resolutions, you bought your new Planet Fitness membership, you're doing all those things. Would you give God's word a little more of a chance this year? Even if you're like, you've read through the Bible every year and you're doing it again, maybe throw a little more time into the study notes. When that little city passes by, maybe dig in a little more. And I think you'll be richly blessed. Um, We're always increasingly put to awe by the Word of God. And it'll change you, I promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have together in your house. I am thankful, Lord, that you have given us your Word. Not just because it's the love letter that you've written to us. It's that in, in all ways. But because it creates a, a passion to know you more. As we read story after story, we see the, the grand narrative of your glory being known to the world until you come back and claim all of your people. That you would finally end this sinful world and give us a new one that we get to live in and dwell with you forever. Until that time, we need the encouragement that's found in your word. We just got done a few minutes ago with these prayer requests, people looking for jobs, people struggling with cancer, people that are desperate. And we see that throughout your word. That desperate people have cried out your name and you have answered. So I pray, Lord, that we would fall in love with the Scriptures. Because they testify to the glory of your name, and they encourage us that in the midst of all that's going on in this world, 
you've got it squarely in your hands. And when the end comes, you will get your glory. And we get to be a part of that. There's nothing better to put our lives into. Help us, Lord, to grow in knowledge of you so that we can share that truth with others, that people would come to faith because you saved us, and we know they need saving too. We love you. Amen.